Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to speaking to Jennifer Te Atamira Ward-Leland and hearing more about her career journey. Jennifer has worked extensively in theatre, film, television, musicals and radio for over 40 years as an actor, director, board member and advocate. Her stage and screen work includes everything from Twelfth Night to Xena Warrior Princess. Jennifer also recently trained as to be an intimacy coordinator and I look forward to hearing more about that as we speak today. She's also a passionate advocate for the craft of acting and for the rights of those working in performing arts. She was a founding board member of the Watershed Theatre and a co-founder of the drama school, The Actors Programme. She's been president of Equity New Zealand since 2008, a union of over a thousand members working in the performing arts, as well as being patron of Q Theatre and Theatre New Zealand. Jennifer has also been a keen student of Te Reo Māori since 2008. In 2017, she was gifted the name Te Atamira, The Stage, by Sir Timothy Karetu and Te Farihuia Milroy. In the 2019 New Year's Honours List, she was named a Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to theatre, film and television. Most recently, Jennifer was honoured as the Kiwi Bank New Zealand of the Year in 2020 for her dedication to performing arts and her commitment and passion for te reo Māori. Morena, Jennifer, and thank you for joining me today. Morena, Anna. Lovely to be with you. Great. Now, my first question, I was thinking about this one before we got started, and I was thinking back to myself as a child and, and the careers I was interested in. I was always keen to be an actor or a musical theatre when I was growing up, and that's ended up not being the career that I've pursued. But I was interested to hear from you when you were a child or, or a teenager, what careers did you dream about or aspire to? At the age of seven, I knew I wanted to be an actor. Anna, and that hasn't changed. So my father was doing a lot of amateur and semi-professional theatre back in the early 70s. And he took my sister and I along to a, a rehearsal of a play that he was in called Oedipus at what was then Unity Theatre in Wellington, but is now Bat Theatre for any of your Wellington-based listeners. Uh, and I walked into that rehearsal room which I thought was a huge room, but I went back 50 years later. It's actually quite small. Uh, and I had a, a sort of bolt in my chest that this is where I belonged. And I went home and told mum that very day that I was going to be an actor. Really, those are the those epiphanies in my life have been the things that have driven me. I've had about three or, f- or four of them. And it's like a, a giant instinct that this is what I should be doing. So... Um, following those has, has, has led me to doing what I've, I've been doing for the last 40 years. Mm, I like the way you talk about that. There's kind of epiphanies or that jolt in the chest. And sometimes mm-hmm. we feel those, but sometimes when we rationalise it afterwards, we yeah, don't necessarily pursue it. How did you then, I guess, acting like any profession, you have to learn and develop, and you've talked about acting being, being very much a craft. How did you develop and learn that craft of acting? I mean, obviously along the way I was doing 
as I said, drama classes and, and any kind of amateur theatre that I could do. And then I got into close to home in mid to late 70s. Uh, but really, I would say my real training began when I went to Theatre Corporate. Now, Theatre Corporate was, a, it, it doesn't exist anymore, but from about 1973 to about 1986, uh, it ran. And Raymond Hawthorne was the founder of that theatre. And he trained a lot of extremely good actors. Long story short, the other epiphany was seeing that theatre company come to Wellington and sitting up there in the cheap seats at Downstage Theatre and looking at them going, whatever they're doing, that's where I'm going. That was just, again, another, you know, bolt in the chest. And I ended up going to a summer school and then being accepted into their drama school, which ran every two years. So it was a drama school attached to a theatre company. So all of the students were taught by the actors who were working in the theatre company, rather like what we do with the Actors Programme now. And so being accepted into that drama school was another life-changing thing for me. I moved to Auckland as a 19-year-old and I spent a year at that drama school and then went straight into the main company. And from then on, was really one of the last generation who got to be in a company for year after year, for probably five years, doing everything from new modern international plays to New Zealand plays to to late night shows to Shakespeare's to classical plays to musicals uh, and really honing my craft by working alongside my elders and betters and being directed by people who who knew craft and I think having that kind of intense period of doing and learning and honing my craft set me up for everything that I am now whether it be my teaching or my directing, my intimacy coordination, craft is at the heart of it. Mm, and that balance between learning but also the doing and the reflecting as well um, obviously Absolutely. really helps to accelerate that learning process. Tell me a bit about the first few years of your career then. What were some of the highlights but also the challenges along the way? When I look at the challenges, in a way, they made me what they are, in that we worked extremely hard. Sometimes we were doing a show in the morning, and then I think I I also joined the school's touring company of Theatre Corporate. So sometimes we were doing school show in the morning, rehearsals in the afternoon, and a performance at night, and it went on like that for an entire year. And that really made me uh, a resilient, robust performer, I I didn't buckle easily. You know, it was all in. I built a family of incredible performers around me who I still dearly love and cherish. So, you know, everything that was hard probably made me the performer that I am. I also think one of the highlights of working in that theatre company was the sense of ensemble. It was about the play being the best thing that you could make it, not about each individual person. And I think that I'm very much about that when I'm directing, that I'm all about the work so that the entire experience for the audience will sing. The play will sing. We have to do everything that we can as a company. We work together. It's not all about each individual person trying to get their place in the sun. It's what can we all do to make this the best thing. I thought that was how all theatre worked, but it wasn't until I went away for a few months to another theatre and and did a series of plays there that I realised that this was unusual, that there was a 
not this sort of devotion to ensemble in other companies, that it, it was all about the individual in the other companies. And it was a real shock to me. It's a way that I want to work because I think you get the best product. Do you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking whether that is the theatre or whether it's a sports team or whether it's a business, actually that same approach of, look, it's not about the, the individual or the stars. What are we trying to work instead? What are we trying to work together on as an ensemble to be the best ensemble that we can be? That It's just such a great lesson. I totally agree. I totally agree. It is about everything. And that's a kind of person I am. But I do think I wouldn't be like that without the kind of training that I had in the um, situation that I had. And I've heard you speak before about, very briefly, about the quite precarious life of an actor in New Zealand. I think um, I think I remember you saying sort of 85, 90% of actors in New Zealand are unemployed at any one point in time. What was your experience of that and how did you cope with that uncertainty? Yeah, well, I would first say that is not just a New Zealand statistic, it's a worldwide statistic. And you have to say to a certain extent, that's the nature of the beast. You have to have a large pool of performers to choose from because casting is varied. But it does mean that actors have to be really practical. And I think there's often this this idea that actors floating around home, emoting and being various characters and and being somewhat um, flaky or something. And honestly, that couldn't be further from the truth because actors have to be practical in order to be able to manage these somewhat haphazard careers. And on the negative side of this lack of work and the kind of work we do, which is a special kind of work, I'm not saying actors are special, but the work we do is special. It puts us into a highly emotional state. The body doesn't know that it's not real. It's not real, but it's got to be made to feel real, but the body thinks it's real. You know, you can be often in a very highly charged state or be going through quite deep and traumatic things on stage and then have to come off and live your normal life. So we can have very poor mental health in our industry. On the other hand, we have an off-the-chart amount of hope so go figure, there's the, there's the paradox of, of actors who can suffer quite poorly, but also maintain this incredible hope that, I guess, that the part will come along, that we will get to express what we have to give. Part of our work as a union is to build community. I think community for actors is extremely important. It can be a very lonely business in that you are often going off to your audition and maybe you see some other actors there and then you come home and you get to maybe congregate with your actor friends when you're seeing plays or getting out and about or doing things like that. But uh, it's important to have your, your professional community around you and also to be undertaking a continuous professional development and, and things like that to make sure that you're kind of keeping your hand in while you're not actually, you know, doing a job. Absolutely. I like that sense of that kind of community coming around you. But it's really interesting to hear you talk about the mental health as well. And I can imagine absolutely if you completely inhabit a role and all the emotions that come with that, then how do you then manage some of the the bits that come out of that? And I think um, part of your work more recently as as an intimacy coordinator is, is related to helping people manage through that. Yes, indeed. And that was something I started training in about 22 months ago. And uh, a trainer, Ita O'Brien, who people might have seen her intimacy uh, coordinating and things like normal people or the great or sex education. And 
once I experienced, you know, I'd been really intrigued about this work and we had in fact been kind of ahead of the game here with uh, Equity New Zealand in that in 2015, we brought together all a, a large number of our membership to discuss sex and nudity on the stage and screen because we were hearing anecdotally that there had been some very problematic experiences for actors. And there's this idea, you know, that actors should just be able to kind of get on with it, that it's not real. But actually, actors have to go somewhere to do that work. You don't want to bring your personal sexuality to the work. You want to be able to bring the character sexuality to the work. And often these things are just not discussed properly. The communication is poor. And even if the experience is, is not, you know, necessarily bad, it's seldom been creative. We brought together in 2015, we started a some guidelines for dealing with this kind of thing for actors. And then Eta O'Brien got in touch with me after that, saying she'd looked all over the world and hadn't and had found that only New Zealand, or Equity New Zealand, had the only guidelines that were actor-focused and could we have a discussion. Anyway, long story short, she came to New Zealand to train some of us and really another light bulb went off for me. And I just saw this work and realised how clean and professional and creative and fun, wonderful and fun that it was if you can compare the intimacy coordinator to the stunt coordinator, we basically break down intimate moments into a kind of choreography. We break it down into the physical beats and then the emotional beats, and then we put those together and we add all sorts of wonderful things on top, whether it's where the breath is, the sound, uh, all of those kind of things, and we create a really great intimate moment. And that might not be just be things of a sexual nature. It could be things like bathing a frail elderly person, you know, where you are in the intimate personal space of somebody else. And so I've, I've basically been working and training at that over the last nearly two years and seeing the enormous difference this has made for actors, even experienced actors. How fascinating. It's something that you don't even think about watching mm-hmm. a piece of acting from outside, but actually how do you then choreograph that type of scene and how do you make sure that the actors can feel more than safe through it and okay afterwards? Jennifer, and having a look at your career, you have this absolute kind of love of the performing arts. What do you love uh, about it? I think and particularly in, in live theatre, there is nothing like being in, the, in a room full of people. That moment will only last for that one time. And in that moment, we are all together experiencing something, whether that be joy or grief or fun or laughter or horror or terror or whatever. We are all feeling something. The actor's, the actor's job is, as Shakespeare said, to hold a mirror up to nature. That means we have to reflect humanity back. And when the audience feel that in an authentic way, you get what I call true communion. You get the possibility for the audience to start telling their own stories, for something to resonate so deeply that it sets off a whole chain of memories and thoughts inside that person. And that can give rise, I think, to to a quality that we sorely need in this world today, and that is empathy. When we can see experiences in front of us on the stage or, or whether we, and that's not just in theatre, I think that's with any artwork, but when you can experience something that is perhaps very different to something you've experienced before that opens your mind up to how people think and feel, then empathy arises. Mm. And, yeah, I think it's 
something we could all do with a lot more of these days. And absolutely, whether it is theatre or film or literature or the arts, you know, all of those absolutely do open up a different your perspective to perhaps a different take on on the world. Yeah. And the title of this podcast is the female career, and I was interested to understand: Have there been through your career any particular challenges or obstacles that you faced as a woman? Look, the good thing about performing is it's an equal opportunities career. The job is acting. You can be a male actor, you can be a female actor. However, gendered inequalities still exist and that shows itself very much up with older female actors. In the studies that have been done by the International Federation of Actors, it's very clear that as women get older, they start disappearing from the screen, Uh, the parts become fewer, and when you compare them to males of the same age, there are systematically different realities for female and male performers, both in the number of roles women get and in the number of leading roles that women get and also in the amount of money that older women make as they uh, progress through this industry. You also see a heavy representation of younger female performers, but at the other end, many fewer. So you could say that part of my success in my career has been that I've spent a lot of time in the theatre. And I would say that the the theatre is, I describe it as the last refuge of the complex female, because you're, you're often doing plays where the focus is on the entire plot and the entire journey of this character, and often in television, although I would say less now, but it's punctuated with shots of beauty and, and sexuality. And of course, radio is another area that you can have a long and distinguished career on. Mm. So there definitely are disparities and they still exist. Also in the film industry, the number of women who are helming things is so much fewer than than men. I, I think there have been, I think we'll see that changing over the next 10 years because it has to. And I think people aren't putting up with it anymore. And frankly, things have changed. You'll look like a dinosaur if you don't start employing the other 50% of the population. So, yeah, I think we're in a a huge time of change. Are we there yet? Absolutely not. And I think there's something about seeing, because of society and all its ingrained norms and what have you, there's a thing about not wanting to see older women on the screen. If you look at, I'm thinking, say, Shortland Street, really how many women over 50 are there on that? Very few, maybe a couple. I'm not sure. Mostly, it's young, younger people. So there's a very much of a youth focus, particularly on the screen. I, I feel really fortunate to have had one of the greatest screen roles I've ever had at the age of 55 when I did a film called Vermilion, and there was a very complex woman to play that you, you could, could use all of my life experience, who had a sexuality about her, who had a creativity about her, who was flawed all of those things. And man, how often do those roles come along? Very infrequently. Really interesting to hear your take on that. I think it's, as you said, I hope, and it feels like there is change happening, both as you said, in terms of the the type of people that we see on screen, where theatre has kept that more strongly, but also in terms of those who are producing, directing roles, who are kind of perhaps leading the shots as well. Yes. And also the people Anna, who are in charge of who and what we see on the television in terms of, look at our newsreaders. Women over 50 are generally put out to pasture, Mm. whereas men over 50 are still doing 50, 60, 70, are still being newsreaders. 
But mm. somehow we won't accept that. I would. Somehow there's this idea that you have to have youth and beauty in front of you from a woman. And the other thing that happens in our industry is what <laughs> we ruefully describe as as O'Reilly describe as uh, aspirational casting, where you're casting a, a mother who might only be 10 years older than the child they're supposedly parented mm. or, or somebody who's supposed to be 45, but actually they're 33. So all of the 33-year-olds will look at that and go, gosh, I hope I look that good when I'm 45. And of course, all a 45-year-old goes, that's so not a 45-year-old. And it's crazy. I can't tell you how many roles I've auditioned for where my child has been anything from nine to 11 years younger than me, Mm. the actor playing my child. So we can't really accept the the reality. You could say, okay, I, I, I I could wear it at 16, 17, 18. That's not what they want. They want sex pot mum or quirky mum or whatever and not an old person to play it. I wanted to change tack slightly and I was really interested to hear about you and your journey to learning te reo Māori and what that has given you. Gosh, where do I start? Oh, my, my world has completely changed. So I've said this before but I'll say it again, I've always known that it was a matter of when I was going to learn, not if I was going to learn. But really that the catalyst for it was in 2000 when Michael was directing a film called Jubilee, and which featured a lot of very talented Māori actors. And I went out to set because it was Michael's birthday and out to set for lunch and all the actors, Māori actors gathered to, to give a, a mihi and then a waiata and then they turned to us to respond and... Every waiata I'd ever learned at school just flew from my mind and I just felt acutely embarrassed that here was an everyday tikanga of life in Aotearoa and I didn't know what to do. I felt really lame and I thought, I'm not going to let this happen again. I need to do something about it. So there's my other epiphany, if you like, my bolt. Of course, then I had babies, so nothing happened for a while and apart from being an actor as well, and that was enough. Uh, anyway, about 2008, I took myself off to an evening class and, and spent the next four years going one night a week, which is probably the longest and slowest way you could ever possibly learn. But gradually, I, I actually look back on that as a really good thing because gradually by osmosis, Te Māori opened its, its window to me. And I, of course, it was a bit like a bug. I took the leap and went to, to study at Te Wananga o Aotearoa and then did an immersion course. So I sort of kept going and kept going to five-day language courses. Whatever has happened, I've tried to keep going. But I I would say that one of the the biggest helps in my journey has been having a friend to go along with me, to travel along with me. And that's something I would really recommend that people get, even if you're on level zero. So my friend Joe and I have been learning since 2009 when I met her. And we... We made a decision about six or seven years ago to only speak to each other in te reo Māori. And that has been great. You know, obviously it was incredibly slow at first, as you can imagine. Uh, but we would test each other on whakatauki, on proverbs and on kiwaha, on idioms and on the bus as we'd go off to school. And so there was another, apart from the stuff that I was learning in the class, there was also another learning going on outside of that. And... Over the last five or more years, my two loves, Te Reo Māori and also 
my performing work have met in a very happy way in that I've been worked in a lot of kaupapa Māori. I was intimacy coordinator on Ahikaroa, which is the bilingual series for Ma- on Māori television. I've played a, a reo speaking Pākehā on the ring-ins. I've been helping on Te Pou Theatre with, um, with various festivals, working as a director. So I've really enjoyed surrounding myself with kaupapa Māori in, in the theatre world, in the theatre and screen world. And in terms of how it's changed me, I feel so much more connected to Aotearoa through having gone on this journey. And I feel I am definitely much more in touch with my whakapapa Pākehā than I ever would have been had I not started learning te reo Māori. So, yeah, I feel fundamentally changed in the best kind of way. And it's just a complete joy to to have the opportunity to speak and understand. Of course, I still consider myself a student. Don't get me wrong. I will be till I die. But uh, to have the opportunity to understand this beautiful, poetic, witty, funny, naughty, deep, wide uh, language, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better gift. What a lovely story and what an inspiring story as well in terms of the dedication that it's taken in the journey that that you've gone on. In the introduction, Jennifer, I talked about the fact in 2017 you were gifted the name Te Atamira. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yes, so I was out at a a conference called Te Puna o Te Ki, which is run by AUT, and it's where a whole lot of really inspiring Māori speakers come along to talk about all sorts of kaupapa, from, you know, breast cancer research to the, the translation of Moana into Te Reo Māori and everything in between, all in Te Reo. So a wonderful two days of conference. And out there were two of, two of Mātanga Māori, two exemplars of Te Reo Māori, Sir Timoti Kāritu and the late great Professor Te Whanihuia Milroy, both of whom have, I have had the privilege of being taught by over various kurareo. Anyway, it was um, morning tea time and I hear Jennifer, Haramai. And I and they were over one side of the room and I was with my friends and, and I went over there and they basically said, we think it's time that you had your Māori name and here it is, Te Atamira. And they sort of were like, okay, all right, good. And I went, really? And they said, yes. And they were like, right, kotau, Te Atamira, that's your name. And I, I remember at the time feeling, oh God, so unworthy. And it's only in the years... So very humbled, very honoured to have been given that name. But I, I see in the years following what they did there, because Te Atamira means the stage, they really laid down the challenge for me to use my time on the stage to champion Te Reo Māori. I get a lot of time on the stage. And every opportunity I do get, apart from when I'm playing a character, obviously, the first language out of my mouth is Te Reo Māori. I think they were saying, use that stage for good. So I add that to my pepeha when I'm introducing myself in Te Reo Māori. So I'll say, ko te atamira te ingoa. Te atamira is my name. Te atamira, the stage, is where I work. It's the place where I work. Mm-hmm. Ko te atamira te pai e whakatairangatia e au te reo Māori. The stage is where I will champion te reo Māori. So... 
it's only in the last sort of year that I've added that to my pepeha. And that feels really right because I want to honour them and honour the fact that they gave me that name. So it's incredibly important to me. As you were telling that story, I had little shivers up my spine, actually, as you did that, Pipiha. It was really interesting to, for me to listen to. It almost brings tears to my eyes when I say it, because I, I, I see the thought behind it. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. As you look back now, what are some of your proudest moments in your career? I've had the opportunity to play some incredible roles, roles that I could have <laughs> driven home from the theatre and I've said I could die happy after playing this role. I've had the opportunity to work with some incredibly creative people on some incredibly creative projects. I'm very proud that we built a union from one that had been pretty well devastated and down to a a couple of hundred, if that, members, up to over a thousand members, and that so many of our members are young people. I'm deeply proud of that and of the people that I work with too, who've worked to achieve that. I'm very proud to call myself an actor. I'm proud of my profession. And I think that the that many actors have integrated or internalised a sort of shame about this profession because I don't know that New Zealand values it that much. And it is a profession. We work hard at it and we're proud of it. But I see actors not almost wanting to say, I work as an actor, and I'm proud of it, I, I see that there's sometimes their, their spine is a little curled. And I want, I suppose that's my one of my life's work is to, to make actors feel like they can stand up with a tall spine, a, a, a strong back, and say, this is what I do, this is my profession, and I'm proud of it. Wonderful. So many things to be proud of. And then as you look forward now, where do you see your career heading in the future? I think I'll just keep doing more of what I'm doing. What sort of mantra I have for myself or a little saying I have is I always work with great people on great projects. And that just seems to keep happening. The The intimacy coordination is, a, is another string to my bow. And to be honest, I, I didn't really need another string to my bow because I've been very busy with all the others. But it was a work that I couldn't not do. And so I think that will continue to burgeon as an industry, as a career, as a profession. And we can get more people up through the ranks with that because there's no turning back now. It's what productions need. I think I'll continue to make my own work. And that's one point I did want to say earlier about perhaps how I've seen the industry change for me as an actor is that obviously the scarcity of work has meant that performers have had to make their own work in order to be able to have satisfying careers. And I think that's a really great thing. So I think I'll continue to make my own work. Hopefully I'll continue to direct and, and perform and do all the many other things that I've kept doing. I, there's no reason for me to leave the country because there's too much going on here. And I just hope that whatever I do challenges me, gives me change in my life, which I'm, I'm very big on. And that's the, one of the other wonderful things about being a an actor, as you go into these different worlds, you get eight weeks of a completely new experience and then bang, you're onto something else. Yeah, creativity, change and challenge, that's what I'm after. Yeah, it sounds like many more exciting years to come. Goodness me, I look forward with interest to see what, what, what comes from there. And a last question, if I may, what career advice would you have for others? For people going into this industry, I think training is really good. I think 
making sure that you're exposed to industry professionals, getting to see as much theatre as you possibly can, and and being around the theatre, I think, is really good because that's often where you're seeing people who work in the industry. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in a foyer and been reminded of some actors because I've seen them in front of me in the foyer going, ah, yes, you. And that might mean that I remember them because there's so many actors you can't hold them in your head all the time if you're casting something. So I need to remind myself of who's out there. I would also say read because it it does a number of things, expands your mind for a start, but it also gives you the ability to concentrate for more than, you know, two minutes, which is what our concentration span seems to be these days. Keep up with your craft if you're a learner actor and perhaps you've left drama school and and you're waiting work, see if you can get together with people and whether that's to do some play readings or some scene study, try and keep your hand up with professional development. But yeah, for those wanting to enter the industry, I would say get some training and classes at least. Great advice. Jennifer, thank you so much for sharing all those different elements of your story and your journey and some of the ups and downs along the way. And I've just taken out of it that that wonderful sense from you of looking for that change and challenge in your life has just been that wonderful thread going through. So thank you. Tēnā koe, Anna. Thank you so much. Tēnā koe. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.